great thinkers, cynics, stoics and epicureans. Several different schools of philosophy emerged in Athens at the same time as and shortly after the famous traditions of Platonism and Aristotelianism. The most significant, which have had a lasting impact since antiquity, were Cynicism, Stoicism and Epicureanism. The Cynics did not form an organised school and their philosophy was less theoretical than a practical programme for a way of life. They believed that training the self to live virtuously was a demanding physical and mental project to which they gave the name Ascarsis, a word also used for training athletes. And this way of life, although arduous, they regarded as a shortcut to virtue. Now we sadly don't have any extended cynic texts and we have to put a picture together from diverse sources. The last is the collection of biographies and sayings of numerous philosophers written by a Greek called Diogenes Laertius in the third century CE. By far the most famous cynic is another Diogenes, Diogenes of Sinope, but he wasn't the original cynic. That was an interlocutor of Socrates called Antisthenes, the son of an Athenian father and a Thracian mother who was present at Socrates' death. Obsessed with philosophy, Antisthenes used to walk eight miles every day from Piraeus to central Athens to be with his brilliant mentor. The name Cynic comes from the Greek adjective kounikos or canine. Antisthenes is said to have taught in the streets of the district south of Athens, known as Kunosarges, which means white dog and contains a gymnasium and temple for Athenian Nothoi. And they were residents of the city who did not have Athenian citizenship and were typically low status and poor. Another explanation of the name is that Antisthenes is supposed to be nicknamed Haplokuon or simply a dog, perhaps referring to his reputed rudeness and rough way of life. Or perhaps it was Diogenes who did consort with and identify with dogs, who's responsible for this group of philosophers receiving their famous label. Diogenes was also the most famous product of Sinope, a city near the southeastern corner of the Black Sea. He came to Athens and he frequented Plato's Academy. And one of the most famous anecdotes about Diogenes which reveals his distinctive technique of exposing absurd philosophical theories with physical comedy, has him respond to the proposal that a human is a featherless biped, and he's said to have burst into Plato's lecture hall brandishing a plucked chicken, shouting, Behold, I bring you a man. And he seems to have been responsible for the association of cynic philosophy with a particularly harsh form of humour. There are similarities between comedy and cynicism, so unrestricted liberty of speech, marked use of abuse, laughter and satire, a fusion of serious content with jocular expression, and an interest in topics and expressions of an earthy, bodily nature. The Stoic emperor, Marcus Aurelius, perceived cynic thought actually to have been the successor of old comedy. Diogenes was very consciously performative, both in his public persona and his pithy statements. And the use of bold speech is reminiscent of the frankness of old comedy, both politically and in terms of ad hominem attacks on well-known individuals. 
and the theatrical dimension of Diogenes' reported public appearances and displays, the sage as showman, has to be understood in the context of the 4th century comic aesthetic. Raising a laugh by marching into the academy with a plucked chicken is one example, but so is walking the streets with a lantern in the daylight, claiming that he was hunting for a single honest man. He even trampled on Plato's carpets in order to point out that the eminent philosopher had become vainglorious. And he's said to have thrown away even his one bowl when he saw a child using his hands to get water from a fountain, and thenceforward to have slurped his water like a dog. When Alexander the Great asked him for any favour he wished, Diogenes merely said, get out of my sunlight. So all these scripted episodes have a self-conscious staginess in which the personality of the witty ascetic makes him the protagonist in a social performance event. Diogenes was held to have evolved his cynic moral system partly in reaction to the dubious financial activities of his father, a wealthy banker of Sinope involved in a counterfeit coinage scandal. We don't have any definite information, sadly, as to whether his public comic performances began in the streets, storage jars and marketplaces of Sinope before he migrated to Athens. There was probably an association between Sinope, though, and the snarling caustic, caustic humour of cynicism. One of his reported reposts actually uses cynic and possibly self-referential Sinopic humour in order to imply that Sinope was an undesirable backwater. When a detractor commented on the undesirability as a fatherland of Sinope, and even stressed that Diogenes' former compatriots had exiled him, the philosopher responded, and I condemned them to stay where they were. Sinope also produced several famous comic writers and actors, and the humorous outlook of Sinope's inhabitants has been seen as a natural response of colonial frontiers meant to life at the very limit of civilization. That scornful humour was Sinope's peculiar talent, the only one of which she gives any great literary evidence. Cynic ethics were based on the belief that virtue is a life lived in, in accordance with nature. Nature itself, especially other animals, show us how to live our best life, which has to be rational, self-sufficient and free. And this picture by Edward Landseer responds by enacting the Alexander and the Sunlight anecdote using actual dogs. Society and its conventions, especially the pursuit of money and glory and the institutions of the family, religion, social hierarchies and the city-state, jeopardise freedom and self-sufficiency and are often absurd and irrational, says the cynic. You become free by renouncing society, codes of conduct and etiquette, by embracing poverty and vagrancy and speaking your mind. Shame is to be renounced because it's a social convention. The instinctive physical body is nothing to be ashamed of, so it's just fine to eat, drink, urinate and masturbate out of doors, even in the streets and marketplace. The only thing to be ashamed of is not living in freedom and rationally like a cynic. This concept of freedom did include eleutheria or personal liberty, 
but it also accommodated self-sufficiency, that's out archaia, because you cannot be free if you're dependent on anyone else. Also, paresia, or freedom of speech, even to the point of risk-taking by being politically subversive or offending powerful figures like Alexander. And this was a distinctive feature of cynicism because most other types of philosopher did enjoy the patronage of royalty. Plato, who accepted the hospitality of the Sicilian tyrant Dionysius II of Syracuse, one day saw Diogenes washing lettuces and said to him, if you paid court to Dionysius, you wouldn't be washing lettuces now. But Diogenes retorted, if you had washed lettuces, you wouldn't have paid court Dionysius. He meant that if you practiced the cynic lifestyle, you would never compromise your freedom and your self-sufficiency by sucking up to a ruler. Freedom also entailed renouncing your attachment to your city-state and becoming a cosmopolitan in the original sense of the word, and that's a citizen of the cosmos or whole natural universe. When Diogenes was asked where he came from, he said neither Sinope nor Athens, but I am a cosmopolites. This was very daring because it meant renouncing the significant benefits that conventional citizenship conferred. He saw that exclusion from citizenship, suffered by the denizens, for example, of Kunos Sargas, was absurd. Universe citizenship was by nature open to all, a very egalitarian and radical notion. And this and other cynic ideas were still energising thinkers until the fall of the Roman Empire. They included Bion of Borysthenes, also in the Black Sea, Cleanthes of Assos, Menippus the Satirist and the Emperor Julian. Although in other ways the Cynics and Stoics could scarcely have been more different, they shared the idea that living in accordance with nature was connected with having a place in the total universe. And the link is not coincidental. It reflects the direct genealogical link between the Cynics and the Stoics. One of Diogenes' most eager Cynic students was the great philosopher Crates of Thebes. He was born in around 365 BCE in Thebes. He inherited a large fortune, which he said to have renounced to live a life of Cynic poverty. Crates was enthused by Aristotle though, he read the whole of Aristotle's inspiring exhortation to philosophy, actually once read it from end to end in a shoemaker's shop at Athens, where he'd moved to become Diogenes' student. And Crates' wife Hipparchia was also a famous philosopher. Crates became the teacher of Zeno of Kition, who founded Stoicism. Zeno was a Cypriot whose love of philosophy began when he asked an oracle how he could achieve his best life. And the god answered that he should take on the complexion of the dead. So he studied dead authors. He became a rich merchant and he was once shipwrecked in Athens. And there he went to a bookshop and he read the account of Socrates in Xenophon's memorabilia. And he was so impressed by Socrates that he asked the bookseller where on earth he could find a man like him. And the bookseller pointed out Crates. So Zeno signed up with him for philosophy lessons. And this explains the several core notions shared by cynicism and stoicism. Both schools regarded virtue as living in accordance with nature. They saw it as a sufficient condition for happiness. 
and they thought that it could be acquired through strict self-training and self-denial. They also both encouraged their members to be indifferent to external affairs, although in practice Stoics were usually deeply engaged in business or politics. Some Stoics admired the Cynics but saw cynicism as a very extreme practice which most people actually couldn't take up satisfactorily. So the Cypriot Zeno lived between about 334 and 262. He came from Kition and was probably, like many Cypriots, partly of Phoenician descent. And certainly other philosophers sometimes said that his philosophical ideas had a flavour of the Phoenician character about them. He taught his new offshoot of cynicism in the painted Stoa at Athens from about 300 BCE. At first, his disciples called themselves Zenonians, were only later known as Stoics. He was by nature a modest and retiring man, inclined to asceticism. He was thin, rugged and tanned, but he really couldn't handle some aspects of cynicism, especially the shamelessness ethos and antisocial stance. Crates tried to cure him. He made Zeno walk through an elegant district of Athens, carrying a pot of lentil soup. But Zeno was ashamed and tried to keep it hidden. Crates smashed the pot so the soup ran down his legs. But Zeno was concerned with appearances and how conventional members of society viewed him. And in this regard, Stoicism fundamentally differed from cynicism, because Zeno really wasn't a cynic. He didn't refuse to consort with monarchs. His admirers included Antigonus II Gennatus of Macedonia, who visited him often. And similarly, Cleomenes of Sparta hired the Stoic philosopher Sphiros to advise him. Nor did Zeno reject membership of a city-state, staying a loyal citizen of Kision, where he was fated and where he contributed to the restoration of its baths. And patriotism was a core element of later Stoicism, especially at Rome. And Zeno also enjoyed food and drink, but he did dislike pompous speech-making and large gatherings. He was also pungently witty. One day he ate with a greedy gourmand who ate everything on the table. So when a very large fish was served, Zeno picked it up and he seemed about to scoff it whole. When the glutton looked at him askance, Zeno asked, what do you suppose those who live with you feel like every day if you can't put up with my gourmandism in this single instance? And to a youth who was spouting nonsense, he said, the reason why we have two ears and only one mouth is that we may listen the more and talk the less. The Athenians took Zeno to their hearts. They put up a statue for him after his death in 262. Um, and he brought his death on himself deliberately, it was said, by holding his breath. The inscription read, Zeno of Kition, son of Manasias, has for many years been devoted to philosophy in our city. He's continued to be a man of worth in all other respects, exhorting us to virtue and temperance, or those of the youth who came to him to be taught directing them to what is best, affording to all in his own conduct a pattern for initiation in the perfect consistency with his teaching. But sadly, we don't have any non-fragmentary work by Zeno or by his two successors as head of the Stoic school, Cleanthes and Chrysippus. We need to build our picture of Stoic thinking from writers of imperial times. Zeno divided philosophy into three parts, logic, physics and ethics. In his logic, he distinguished between comp comprehensible and 
incomprehensible true conceptions. He also said that we did have the free will to give or withhold assent when deciding whether we could rely on our sense impressions. We have the capacity, potentially, to avoid being mistaken about the world by selecting or rejecting the evidence of our senses with the use of reason. But most people rely on mistaken perceptions. The Stoics, unlike Aristotelians, put no trust in ordinary people's everyday intuitions. They dismissed the views of almost everybody as ignorant. Only the knowledge of the fully developed Stoic sage is reliable and such sages are rare. There is no middle ground between true knowledge and false impressions, no place even for informed opinion. There are a few wise men, but there's the ignorant mass. In his physics, Zeno said that the universe is the same thing as God. It has reason and contains a fine a divine fire or breath which generates everything. And as our, our souls are partakers in this same fire and breath as motors the universe. The criterion of existence is simply the capacity to act or be acted upon and only bodies, corpora, can be acted or act upon. For Stoics, God suffuses all of creation, directs everything. The cosmos is alive, God is its life force, its fire, its breath. And this life force, which is also equivalent to reason, is one of two first eternal principles or archai of the cosmos, and the other is matter. Fire-breathing breathing reason designs everything in accordance with its total plan. And some scholars see this in a biological way as a seed or sperm and say it was a corporealist philosophy, where the Epicureans, as we shall see, were materialists who saw matter as the fundamental constituent of the universe. Zeno said that the divine plan, affected through work done by the fire-reason logos, takes the form of a cycle endlessly repeated. Each one ends in a conflagration and a state of pure designing fire. Then the elements separate into active fire and air, passive water and earth. The active elements in combination make the breath that animates organic life and the detailed development of the cosmos ensues until the next conflagration. Each stage is inevitable given its antecedent causes. There's only one way in which can happen. This system is determinist. The principle of inevitability is also identical with fate or fatum. And in his ethics, Zeno said, there's only one thing we should aim at and that's happiness. And he agreed with the cynics that this can be achieved by training, ascesis, in understanding what's good for us and exercising our own correct reason aligned with the universal reason or logos. An unpleasant sensation is, he said, a disturbance of the mind going against reason and against nature. We should aim at the appropriate action, which he called a katharkon. He said there are four negative emotions, and they're desire, fear, pleasure and pain, and they need to be fended off with the use of reason. He wrote numerous treatises, most famously his Republic, which seems to have described his ideal Stoic society built on reason. One of the biggest challenges the Stoics wrestled with was this. How much free will is there if the development of the universe is predetermined by fate? And the Stoic who considered this in detail was Chrysippus, the third head of the Stoic school at Athens. And his teacher Cleanthes, the second head 
had been taught by Zeno himself. Chrysippus proposed that there were two different kinds of cause, some of which can tail, entail fate, that's complete or primary causes, and some of which do not, and they're auxiliary or proximate causes. And to try to explain this, he produced his image of a person's character as a cylinder. Antecedent causes give us things to react to and work like someone giving an inert cylinder a push. Where the cylinder goes is partly dependent on the nature of the push, but it's also partly dependent on its own shape. And in the same way, the shape of your individual character will affect how you respond to everything that has ever happened to you. Your decisions are your own. Cicero tells us that the free will problem was also countered by some Stoics with the idea that the Stoic sage could develop true moral freedom in the form of the power to live as he will. This explanation is contained in the fifth of Cicero's six Stoic paradoxes, which sum up how Stoicism was popularly seen. One, virtue is the only good. Two, a virtue man is destitute of no requisite of a happy life. Three, all deeds are inherently equal. Good deeds are the same as bad deeds, they're equal. Every fool is a madman, only the wise man is free, and every fool is a slave. Six, the wise man alone is rich. Everybody but the Stoic sage is effectively insane. Everybody but the Stoic sage is in the condition of a slave. The only way to be happy is by virtuous living in accordance with reason and nature. But however bald, reductive and extreme these principles may sound, the Stoics did have a serious conceptual system underlying their philosophy. They argued that the primary impulse of all creatures with souls is to do what's appropriate for them or serves to preserve them. And this doctrine they called oikiosis. This should mean that we order our preferences in a rational way. It's obvious that we would choose not to injure ourselves if given the choice. Tiny children choose by nature what they need physically and what is appropriate. But as we mature, our choices become moral ones and far more complicated. People we associate with, other rational beings, may have needs which clash with ours. And then we may have to choose some course of action which we wouldn't ordinarily objectively prefer. And the only solution here is to use our accumulated wisdom to decide which course of action is rational and in accordance with the divine plan and nature in those kinds of circumstances. If the circumstances are extreme enough, for example, choosing to commit suicide can well be in agreement with reason. The Stoic Epictetus defined this principle as follows. As long as the future is uncertain to me, I always hold to those things which were better adapted to obtaining the things in accordance with nature. For God himself has made me disposed to select these. But if I actually knew I was fated now to be ill, I would even have an impulse to be ill. For my foot too, if it had intelligence, would have an impulse to get muddy. Stoic views of the emotions or passions, the pathé, attracted criticism and ridicule even in antiquity. Aristotle's followers insisted that emotions needed to be moderated but not eliminated. Some people called Stoics men of stone and their hilarious caricatures in the satirist Lucian, 
who was indebted to cynic thought. But to be fair to the ancient Stoics, they saw the passions as something that happens to you in direct contrast to things that you do as an active agent. The goal of apatheia did not mean trying to be apathetic in our modern sense, to make yourself invulnerable to irrational impulses, to be fully in control. Normal impulses like eating enough and finding shelter are in accordance with reason and nature and are not passions. Passions are appetites for things including sex, fear of things and the distress or pleasure we experience as a result of things we desire or fear and these are irrational. The Stoic physician Galen gives the wonderful example of an impulse to run which can be rational and natural in certain circumstances. But if we do it on a steep hill, we may not be able to stop immediately if another rational impulse kicks in, like avoiding a chasm. The impulse has got out of our control, is controlling us. This is what happens if we're overcome by lust, for example, for someone, even though sexual relations with them will jeopardise the attainment of more rational objectives. Stoicism became popular under the Roman Empire. It really fitted the practical Roman bureaucracy and Roman models of ideal masculinity and patriotism. It offered concrete instruction in what to think about wealth and poverty, death and suffering, freedom and slavery. In a world with huge social mobility, short life expectancy, frequent wars and natural disasters, it also offered a model of resilience, which many, especially men, found helpful. And the idea of ineluctable fate um, went well with the vision of the ever-growing Roman Empire too. And Stoicism was attractive to the Roman political elite. Prominent Stoics included Cato the Younger, Marcus Junius Brutus, Pompey, who visited the famous Stoic philosopher Posidonius of Rhodes, and Octavius, later Caesar Augustus, who had a Stoic tutor. And the three prominent Stoics who thought we can access via entire treatises all worked under the Roman Empire. And they're said to belong to the late Stoa. They're Seneca, Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. And their chief interest was the improvement of the self through ethical training. They're much less interested in those physical and metaphysical ideas of the earlier Stoics. Their emphasis is on psychology especially how to achieve psychological freedom, even when oppressed. And that comes through rejecting the slavery of appetite for glory or wealth. They also think hard about exactly how to get passions like anger, for example, under control. At about the age of 50, Seneca became Nero's advisor, but fell out with the narcissistic emperor. He was forced to commit suicide in 65 CE for allegedly taking part in an assassination conspiracy. And his moral essays, especially those on anger, clemency, the shortness of life, and his letters to Lucullus, are the most accessible route to Stoicism for a modern reader. Seneca and Epictetus's worlds briefly intersected. Epictetus was lame and a slave in Rome to Nero's secretary who allowed him to study Stoic philosophy under Musonius Rufus. Epictetus was manumitted after Nero died and taught philosophy for a living until 93 CE when the emperor Domitian cynically exiled all the philosophers. He moved to Epirus and founded his school. And his teachings were recorded in Greek by his pupil Arian. He placed enormous emphasis 
according to both his discourses and his Enchiridion, or little handbook, on the distinction between things we can control, that's prohyretic things, and those that are not are prohyretic things. That alone is in our power, which is our own work. And in this class are our opinions, our impulses, our desires and aversions. On the contrary, what's not in our power are our bodies, possessions, glory and power. Any delusion on this point leads to the greatest errors, misfortunes, troubles, and he wrote, to the slavery of the soul. We have no power over external things. The good that ought to be the object of our earnest pursuit is to be found only inside of ourselves. And lastly, Marcus Aurelius, born into a family at the other end of the social scale, was Roman Emperor from 161 to 180 CE, and his meditations were supposedly written only for his own use. It was written straightforwardly in the form of precepts, which encourage the analysis of one's own judgment and choices, and the development of a broad perspective on the universe and time. He recommends avoiding indulging the senses and overreacting to external pressures. Epicurus was born in 341 BC, shortly after Zeno died. And his doctrines teach that by far the most important factor in achieving happiness is mental tranquility, ataraxia. He was brought up in Samos, but in 307 founded his community at a site in Athens called the Garden, northwest of the urban centre, very near the academy Plato had founded 80 years before. It was irrigated by the nearby Eridanus River and offered a private, beautiful, secluded place for Epicurus's calm followers who included ancient tradition held both women and slaves. They didn't abandon themselves to the uh, satisfaction of excessive appetites for food, drink and other carnal pleasures. Although other ancient critics peddled this caricature already, it did misrepresent their belief that pleasure head on air was the most important goal in life. Epicurean hedonism was not originally defined as the gratification of fleshly desire, Rather, it's simply an absence of distress or disturbance, ataraxia. And this tranquillity could be achieved by withdrawing from public life to the company of like-minded friends and using philosophy and physics to minimise fear of pain and death by proving that gods did not involve themselves in human affairs and that there was therefore no afterlife in which humans could suffer retribution. Epicurus worked out a system for understanding the cosmos and human life and happiness. Nature was a mechanism consulted out of material atoms which swerve around. The gods had no interest in human ethics or society. Knowledge derived empirically from the senses was reliable. And evolution was a process from the formation of the atomic world to complex human societies. And happiness, the goal of human life, consisted of minimising pain and misery. The soul did not survive death, was dispersed into atoms and did not suffer punishment in the afterlife. Fear of death dogged attempts at human happiness, so freeing humans of fear of death would allow them to pursue pleasure if they also avoided sources of anxiety, like involvement in public affairs. But Epicurus did provide motives for living virtuously, even though there was no providential deity. First, he said, committing crimes creates anxiety, you'll be apprehended. 
But more importantly, he defined justice or the right way of doing things as the making and keeping of contractual relationships with all other humans, guaranteeing neither to inflict nor to suffer any reciprocal harm. And third, living the pleasurable and pain-free life is incompatible with imprudence, dishonour and injustice. Practical wisdom, phronesis, is the most important virtue and it will allow you to avoid crime, keep your promises and do no harm. Epicurus had studied philosophy under the tutelage of Nausiphanes and he was a Democritean atomist and materialist philosopher. Democritus had proposed that a proper materialist understanding of the universe could stop us feeling terrified by anything. That principle is athambia fearlessness. Now, Siphanes proposed a slightly different term, atacata, our cataplexia, undauntability, and these seems to have been the precursors of Epicurean's ataraxia or resistance to disturbance. Epicureans shared with Stoics and Platonists the idea that emotions were bad. Stoics advocated suppressing them, where Epicurus recommended avoiding them altogether, even to the extent of not marrying or having children. But of Epicurus' own 300 works, there have survived only three substantial letters, reproduced by the unreliable Diogenes Laertius, and two collections of aphorisms called the Principal Doctrines and the Vatican Sayings. Some of these really are inspiring and reward contemplation. Friendship dances around the world, summoning each one of us to awaken our blessedness. There are also invaluable charred papyrus fragments of works by both Epicurus and the Epicurean philosopher Philodemus, found in the 18th century in the villa of the papyri at Herculaneum. And they had been carbonised by the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 CE. And Philodemus made a precious summary of Epicurus' ideas called the Fourfold Remedy or Tetrapharmakos. And this only survives through one fragment that actually dissolved in the late 18th century. So what is the tetrapharmakos? First, don't fear God. Second, don't worry about death. Third, what's good is easy to get. Fourth, what's terrible is easy to endure. I think there's a problem with the third and fourth remedies because uh, any reader struggling to make ends won't find them very practicable unless they have no dependents and are temperamentally very ascetic. Most Epicureans do seem to have been prosperous, at least enough to withdraw altogether from public life and live in contemplative leisure. The best introduction to Epicurean scientific and metaphysical thought is the magnificent Latin epic by Philodemus' contemporary Lucretius de Rerum Natura on the nature of things. Lucretius wanted to turn Epicurus's great Greek treatise on nature into magnificent verse for his Roman countrymen to enjoy. And there's an almost missionary zeal about the way Lucretius promises that this Epicureanism can release the human race from fear. Whilst humankind throughout the lands lay miserably crushed before all eyes beneath religion, who would show her head along the region's skies, glowering on mortals with her hideous face. A Greek it was, who first opposing dared raise mortal eyes that terror to withstand, 
whom nor the fame of the gods nor lightning stroke, nor even threatening thunder of the ominous sky abashed, but rather chafed to angry zest his dauntless heart to be the first to rend the crossbars at the gates of nature old. And thus his will and hardy wisdom won, and forward thus he fared afar beyond the flaming ramparts of the world, until he, till he wandered the unmeasurable all whence he told to us, a conqueror reports what things can rise to being, what cannot, and by what law to teach its scope prescribed, its boundary stone that clings so deep in time. Wherefore religion now is underfoot, and us his victory now exalts to heaven. And in the second century CE, the missionary zeal of Lucretius is shared by the creators of two extraordinary archaeological phenomena. They show, moreover, that at the time Christianity was on the rise, there were equally ardent advocates of Epicureanism from one end of the Roman Empire to another. First, a citizen of Oinoander in Lycia, that's today's southwest Turkey, confusingly the third Diogenes we've met today, created a massive monument to Epicureanism in the form of an 80-metre wall inscription summarising its doctrines. This originally contained 25,000 words. And this Diogenes bought a patch of land, erected on it a portico, decorated with statues. Perhaps it also included his own intended mausoleum. On its two longer sides, he had inscribed three of his own Epicurean treatises on ethics, physics and old age. There are also some letters to his friends on Epicurean topics, a collection of Epicurean maxims and Epicurus's letters. And new pieces of the inscription are still being discovered and published. And here are some moving sentences from Diogenes' introduction, as translated by Martin Ferguson Smith. I declare that the vain fear of death and that of the gods grip many of us, and that joy of real value is generated not by theatres and baths and perfumes and ointments, which we've left to the masses, but by natural science. In this way, citizens, even though I'm not engaging in public affairs, I say these things through the inscription just as if I were taking action and in an endeavour to prove that what benefits our nature, namely freedom from disturbance, is identical for one and all. Having already reached the sunset of my life, being almost on the verge of departure from the world on account of old age, I wanted, before being overtaken by death, to compose a fine anthem to celebrate the fullness of pleasure. It's right to help generations to come too, and besides, love of humanity prompts us to help also all the foreigners who come here. Now, since the remedies of the inscription reach a larger number of people, I wanted to use this stoa to advertise publicly the medicines that bring salvation. And these medicines have been put fully to the test. We have dispelled the fears that grip us without justification. And second, in eastern central France, an Epicurean Autun, that's a city founded by Augustus, decorated a room with dazzling mosaics, including portraits of Epicurus and his leading follower, Metrodorus. Metrodorus is better preserved. He sits on a chair in a tunic and sandals, holding a book roll and thinking. Around him is inscribed in Greek the 14th of the Vatican sayings. 
We have been born once, there can be no second birth. For all eternity we shall no longer be. But you, although you are not master of tomorrow, are postponing your happiness. We waste away our lives in delaying, and each of us dies then without having enjoyed leisure. Epicurus has survived less intact, but the maxim around him is attested elsewhere. It's impossible to live pleasantly without living wisely and honourably and justly. It's impossible to live wisely and honourably and justly without living pleasantly. The other identifiable figure is the archaic Greek lyric poet Anacreon, famous for his songs about love affairs and drinking parties. Some Epicureans, at least, do not seem to have avoided the pleasures of sex, even if they eschewed the responsibilities of marriage and children. I can't leave the great thinkers of antiquity without briefly mentioning a fourth additional tradition called scepticism founded by Pyrrho of Elis. He was born about 360 BCE, but this remained a much less familiar school confined to esoteric intellectual circles and we know little about its evolution in the Hellenistic era. The chief target of the ancient sceptics seems to have been the dogmas of the Stoics. Like the Epicureans, the Pyrrhonists believed in turning their backs on mainstream life, and their main goal was also to attain ataraxia, but they believed this was achieved through achieving a state of suspension of judgment about all beliefs. And they called that epoche. A chief method was to collect arguments on both sides of controversy until the arguments on each side have achieved equal force, isosthenia. And at this point, a Pyrrhonist can infer that the disagreement on the subject actually can't be resolved, and so the only appropriate response is to suspend judgment altogether. Epochaire can become the habitual response to controversy, allowing the sceptic to become free of aggravation and achieve ataraxia. And in the mid-third century, the sixth head of Plato's academy, Arcasillaus of Pitani, applied to Plato's work some of the methods of scepticism, especially its extreme doubt that epistemological certainty could be achieved, either from evidence produced by our senses or deduced by our mind. So he actually developed a different branch of scepticism known as academic scepticism. And Cicero, who was trained in it, saw it as in effect reviving the authentic question and answer method of Socratic Elenchus itself. But Arcasillaus was the ultimate sceptic. He refused to accept even his own conclusion. He did not claim to know for certain that nothing could be known for certain. Now this kind of arcane thinking never really did take off. But in Rome, in 155 BCE, the academic sceptic Carniades, famously or notoriously addressed a crowd of thousands one day, argued that justice was a genuine good in its own right. But the next day, he argued against the proposition that it was in an agent's interest to be just, in terms every bit as convincing. And this dazzling display of dialectical skill, together with the suspension of philosophical culture and the suspicion of it, generated a conservative backlash against all Greek philosophers led by Cato the Elder, and that lasted for more than a century. So, which dish will you choose from the rich banquet of ancient Greek philosophy? 
Are you a cynic with a capital C, a witty but anarchic, antisocial animal admirer who wants to bark at human folly? Are you a stoic who thinks self-control, austerity, rationality and a resilient acceptance of fate are the keys to a satisfactory life? Epicureanism still appeals to many, as it did indeed to Thomas Jefferson, Nietzsche, Marx and the poet Tony Harrison. That's a scientific outlook repudiation of providential deities or life after death, rejection of public life as least as it's conventionally constituted, and a commitment to savouring pleasure. Or perhaps you're a sceptic and you can identify holes in every doctrine ever held by any other philosopher. One thing is sure, when it comes to ancient Epicureanism and especially Stoicism, there are plenty of modern organisations devoted to promulgating what are presented sometimes wildly inaccurately as their views. And the therapeutic aspect of these ancient schools of thought has inspired self-help authors like Dale Carnegie, experience in meditation, mindfulness, cognitive behavioural therapy, discussion of military ethics, and events such as the Live Like a Stoic Week. Regular attendees of these Gresham lectures will know that I personally find more useful the humane virtue ethics of Aristotle the Peripatetic. These don't require any fundamental changes in my working life, domestic arrangements or civic membership. But we are all different. The thing that still amazes me is that the ancient world developed so many alternative ethical models and approaches to living one's best life. Diogenes, Zeno, Epicurus and Pyrrho all made their marks in Athens like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, but they also brought fresh ideas and approaches from the edges of the far wider Greek diaspora and they did it more than 2,000 years before the European Enlightenment began to make it possible once again to discuss morality without reference to any god whatsoever. Thank you.